All right, season one finale. Uh, if you're new today, we've been in this series for the last couple of months uh, where we're just looking at the Bible from 30,000 feet. We're taking it one book, one week at a time. Each week we do a different book of the Bible and just give an overview of what that book is about, tell the story of that book so that we can connect it all together and see the story of Scripture. I believe the Bible tells one remarkable story from start to to finish, and I hope uh, that you see that in this series. Truly, I, I have a goal with this series. I've got an ulterior motive. I've got plans for you. Everyone in your life has plans for you. Don't be surprised. I do too. And it's that you would see in this series the overall story of Scripture, and it would make you want to study Scripture more. Uh, truly, I believe that the way that you come to know God deeper and deeper is not by me standing up here for between 30 and 45 minutes every week and communicating to you about what God's Word says, but getting into His Word on your own, beginning to study it, studying it with your people, with your friends, with mentors, with leaders, and understanding the whole context of Scripture. And I hope that in this series, as we talk about that context and give a greater understanding, it makes you want to dive into these books and uh, get a better understanding of the story of God. Well, we've been through a lot so far. We've talked about creation and the fall of man. We talked about how people lived more and more and deeper in sin and depravity and brokenness the further they got away from God. And so in Genesis chapter 11, we see God kind of restart the story with a man named Abram, who he would rename Abraham. And in Abraham, he made a covenant that he would use this man and his descendants to bring the presence of God to the whole world. That story goes on, and Abraham has descendants, Isaac and Jacob, and they go through this great journey together. And many years later, we see the descendants of Abraham entering into the land of Canaan, a land that God promised to give them to establish a nation there so that from that nation, God could change the world. Joshua leads the people of Israel into Canaan. They take the land. And last week, we or two weeks ago, we talked about the book of Judges and we begin to see a pattern emerging really all the way back in Israel uh, that is firmed in the book of Judges of this cycle of sin. God, all the way back at the beginning of his relationship with humanity, said, I want you to serve me and me only. And he keeps clarifying that throughout Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. He says, I want you to make sure that I am the only God you serve. Don't bring in the gods of the nations around you. Don't do their practices. Don't live the way that they live. I want you to be set apart for me, to live only and solely and exclusively for me. And that was what God asked of his people because he wants to use his people to reveal himself to the world. But the people don't follow that simple command. They bring in other gods. They lose sight of him. They worship other uh, pagan gods. They sin. They live the way the people around them live. They break the laws. They don't live the way that God asks them to live. And in Judges, we see this cycle of sin followed by oppression. God would bring justice through oppression, and they would have other armies invade, or, or other things would happen that would punish them for their sins. And then God would offer redemption because the people would cry out in repentance. They would want to change their direction, change their ways and ask God to save them. And God would, and he'd bring relationship again and peace again. And he, he would establish grace in the kingdom for them again. And all of these good things would happen. And then they would go back to sin 
and they would just abandon God and his rules and his ways again. And then it would start all over. It was this cycle that went on for hundreds of years, really, from the time of Exodus all the way through the time of Judges. I want to pause for a second and encourage you to remember not to apply everything in the Old Testament directly to your life. This book is not about you. It's about God. And this is his story. And it's a story to help us understand him. And here's why I tell you that. Because maybe at some point in your life you internalized a belief or somebody pushed it upon you that the oppression you face in this life is God punishing you for your sin. It's the way it worked in the Old Testament. Now you will have consequences because of your sin. Natural consequences. When you sin, there are natural and spiritual consequences. That's different than a punishment through oppression. If somebody's ever told you that the bad luck that you are having is because God is oppressing you for your sin, that is bad biblical interpretation. There is no more oppression as punishment for sin because that was satisfied in Jesus. Now, because of Jesus, we can move directly from sin to salvation. God doesn't bring punishment on you because he rained all of his punishment down on Jesus. And you have this lifetime to come into an understanding of that. The oppression and the bad luck that you're feeling might just be because we live in a fallen and broken world and bad things happen. There are consequences for sin, but no longer do we suffer this kind of oppression. But it was the way that things operated in these days. So in the book of Judges, we see this cycle and we see this power struggle between two tribes, Benjamin and Judah. The question throughout the book is which one is going to take the lead, Benjamin or Judah? The people keep choosing Benjamin to take the lead. They want to follow the tribe of Benjamin, but the tribe of Benjamin is doing all kinds of evil things in the name of all of Israel. They are killing people by the dozens, innocent people. They're executing. They're doing things like uh, wiping out families because they don't like the directions they were going or, or somebody else wants to be in charge. Benjamin's doing terrible things, and every time they do, God calls in the tribe of Judah to come and fix it. And he says, Judah, I want you to take the lead. So all throughout Judges, even as Judges ends, we see this struggle between Benjamin, who man keeps choosing, and the tribe of Judah, who God keeps choosing. Then we enter into a uh, the book of Ruth. In fact, Judges 21, 25, Judges ends with this refrain that it's repeated four different times. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It was setting up our book for today. After Judges comes the book of Ruth. Ruth really just tells us one thing that's very important to the overall story. During all of the sin and oppression of Judges, God is working together a beautiful story behind the scenes. In fact, we know that that's true of God in many circumstances. That despite the terrible things that we can see in front of us, a beautiful story is being worked behind the scenes. In the book of Ruth, we see this incredible story of loyalty and faithfulness and love and redemption. We read this amazing story, and then at the very end, like a post-credit scene in a Marvel movie, they reveal that the whole story was about the great-grandmother of King David. That this was a person God was using to bring salvation to the nation of Israel through his king, King David, who would eventually lead us to Jesus. David was an ancestor of Jesus. Therefore, Ruth is an ancestor of Jesus. So today, we are looking at 1 Samuel. 
When we come back for season two, we'll pick up with 2 Samuel. But it's worth noting that these two books weren't written separately. Uh, They're two different books because the Bible is an ancient text. And when they wrote it, it didn't appear on nice, you know that, what's up with that paper that they make Bible pages out of? It doesn't tear very easily, but it's so thin. But it's also very loud. And maybe that's on purpose so people know you're reading the Bible when you're reading the Bible, you know? It's like, (laughs) anyways, they didn't have that cool paper. They had scrolls. And there came a point where the scroll was just too big to get scrolled up anymore. They couldn't stuff it together to get it into the cubby hole where they kept all the scrolls. And so when that would happen, they would split a text into 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel because it just meant scroll number one and scroll number two. It's one consistent story that's been broken in half really for the convenience of the ancient world. And so these two books were written at the same time, and their author is Samuel for the most part. Samuel wrote the majority of the book of Samuel, but he died, and then his work, the work of this story was taken up by a prophet named Nathan and Gad. And these two guys, Gad Zooks, they, they did what they could to finish the story, or they followed the, the leading and the prompting of the Holy Spirit to finish this story, and that is the author's. It was written between 1100 B.C. and 1000 B.C., and so this is a thousand years after Abraham. This is 500 years after Moses. A lot of time has passed in our story so far. Um, It's a history book that tells the story of Israel's transition from a theocracy to a monarchy, I think one of the great themes of this book happens in a verse we'll read in a minute here where the people of Israel have demanded a king. They've begged for a king, and Samuel, who was the last judge, gives them that king. But as he's doing it, he's pretty bitter about it. He feels rejected. He feels like, what, I wasn't good enough, and all these kinds of things. And God says, Samuel, you do not need to be feeling rejected, for they have not rejected you. They have rejected me. And that is what it is about. Because God had set his people up to be a theocracy with him as their king, him as their head. And from this point on, they would reject that theocracy in pursuit of a monarchy, which would take them all kinds of terrible places. And we see the perfect theocracy of God reestablished when Jesus comes and is crowned king of kings who we can serve forevermore. And so uh, that is the the theme here. It's a theme of God's faithfulness and man's rebelliousness, just as in all the preceding books. We also see clear distinctions between the goodness of what God chooses for us and the corruption of what we choose for ourselves. Uh, Three different sections in this book based on the three main characters of Samuel. Number one is Samuel. Samuel's the first character in the book. Chapters 1 through 8 are about Samuel. We open with the origin story of Samuel. Samuel's dad had two wives. Uh, There is a lot, and I mean a lot, of polygamy in the Bible. Uh, David, who we're going to talk about later, who is one of the most famous people in history, who we know is God's man. Uh, David had a lot of wives. And then his son Solomon was actually famous for how many wives he had. When they would introduce him places, they would intru- one of the attributes they would list was how many wives and concubines Solomon had. It was pretty serious in these days. So does that mean that the, uh, you know, the original Mormons were right the whole time? Should we take the show Sister Wives as instructional content? Is polygamy okay? No. 
While there's a lot of polygamy in the Bible, it's never spoken of favorably. In fact, it's counted and considered sin throughout the entire context of scriptures. It was simply a fact in the ancient world. In those days, there was no such thing as a king who only had one wife. And while we know that David was a man after God's own heart, the story we see all throughout Scripture is that even though God said, be holy, be set apart only for me, that his people were always bringing in the practices of the world into their hearts and into their lives. And even in David, who eventually fell into sexual sin, even in David, we see that the area where he most did this was in his practice of polygamy, which led him into serious consequences in 2 Samuel. And so uh, there's a lot of polygamy in the Bible, and that's, that's what I have to say about it. Samuel, uh, honestly, there's always chaos, pain, and consequences attached to polygamy, which is what we see in 1 Samuel. Samuel's mother, Hannah. Hannah is unable to have children after many years of trying. Her sister wife, Penaniah, relentlessly teased her and bullied her because she was unable to have children. One day, Hannah is at the temple praying, and she's pouring her heart out. 1 Samuel 1.10 says she was deeply distressed, and she prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Now, why are haircuts important? Because there is a type of vow she is making called a Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow meant you are dedicating yourself fully to the Lord. Not as the, hey, I dedicate myself to the Lord today, and then you go right back to living exactly what you were doing. A Nazarite vow means I will only serve the Lord. It will be everything about who I am. The Nazarite vow, you didn't cut your hair. You didn't eat food that was considered ceremonially unclean. There were extra foods on top of all the foods that regular Jewish people couldn't eat, that you couldn't eat, and then you weren't allowed to be anywhere near um, Anything that was considered ceremonially unclean in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy uh, is what the Nazarite vow was. And so Hannah makes this vow essentially to say, I'm going to give my child to you if you give me a child. Well, Eli, the high priest, he sees her praying in this extreme and distressed fashion. And he comes over and she, he thinks she's drunk because of how passionately she's praying. He comes over and he says, hey, lady, it's a little bit early in the morning to be up in this place drunk. Why don't you go on and scoot out here? She's pouring her heart out to the Lord. And honestly, this is not a great pastor moment. So she tells him that she's not drunk, she's praying, which is probably an excuse many drunk people have used, but in her case it was true. Eli is embarrassed, and so he blesses her prayers. He says, may God give you the desires of your heart. And Hannah goes from there and does in fact get pregnant. And she's so overjoyed. She gives birth to Samuel, and she's good on her word. When Samuel is weaned, which in this culture was around three years old, she took Samuel to the temple and presented him to Eli as his ward. Samuel would go and live in the temple. He would be raised there, trained from the age of three to be a priest, to be the high priest in the temple, given over to God. Now, to us, this sounds very sad. Uh, a, a wife who has, a woman who has yearned for a child to have to give away the child she's finally received. But to Hannah, this is not a sad day. 
She writes a song of praise and rejoicing. She is so overjoyed with the ability to honor her word to God, to say that God has honored his word to me. I honor my word to him. She is not out of Samuel's life. It says every year she would make him a new robe to wear and bring it to the temple and and give it to him. She gets to see him, but she's just given him over the way she said she would. After this, God blesses her with three more sons and two more daughters, and her life is full. And so Samuel is being raised in the temple, and he's living there with Eli and Eli's two sons. Chapter 2 tells us that Eli's sons were very evil men. Uh, They were priests, but they stole from the temple and they spiritually and sexually abused the women who came to worship there. These sins in God's scripture are punishable by death in these days. But instead of offering actual consequences, Eli just rebukes them, tells them not to do that anymore, asks them to stop, but they ignore him, and then Eli does nothing. It is Eli's responsibility to punish his sons and to protect people from them. But he does not, and therefore he is complicit in their sin. Because what you permit, you promote. So one night, God speaks to Samuel. First, Samuel has no idea what's going on. He's laying in bed and he hears Samuel, Samuel. He gets out of bed, he goes to Eli's room, wakes Eli up and says, what, what do you want? He's about middle school, uh, teenage age maybe, and he wakes up, Eli says, what do you want? Eli says, I didn't say anything, man, leave me alone. I'm trying to go to, every parent knows this feeling. Why are you here? Go away. I'm trying to sleep. And then Samuel goes back to bed, here's Samuel, Samuel again, he gets up, he goes and he wakes up, Eli and Eli's like, leave me alone. And he goes back to bed and he comes back and he says, hey, I heard it again. And Eli says, oh, oh snap, you're hearing from God. You need to answer next time. And so the Bible says this, uh, the Lord came again and stood calling as at the other time, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak for your servant hears. And then the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever. For the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli, that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. It's unforgivable. Samuel lay until morning, (laughs) probably feeling pretty stressed out. And then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide anything from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that was told to you. Just to clarify, Eli is the father figure in Samuel's life. He is his mentor. He is the high priest of Israel. He is an important person. And God has given Samuel this message. And now he has to deliver it. Very scary moment, which most people would have backed down from. Samuel said this. Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And Eli replied, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. Samuel heard the Lord And he obeyed the Lord, 
even when he was calling him to do something exceptionally difficult, to confront sin in a way that was extremely hard for him. It's one thing to hear from God. It is a whole other thing to act on what you've heard when it is not easy. Because of his obedience, Samuel becomes the man of God in Israel, the prophet for Israel. He, he gets a place of prominence. God speaks to him. Because Samuel listened the first time God spoke to him, God continues to speak to him. Uh, he gave him uh, position and prominence. He made him the last judge of Israel. And I would argue he was Israel's best judge. He never falls to pride or idolatry. He does the right thing even when it's hard, and he surrenders his power when he's called to do so. Which brings us to our next section. The second main character of Samuel is Saul. Chapters 9 through 15 tell us his story. Samuel lives a long life and does some great things as a judge. He wins some big battles. There's some very cool stuff for you to read there in the first eight chapters of Samuel. There's one part where the enemy of Israel steals the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant stayed in the temple and it was where the presence of God rested. And the Israelites had all these rules about how to be around it, when or not to look at it. And the enemy takes it and they take it back to their castle and they put it in their temple with their uh, image of a God there and have you guys ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? It happens in 1 Samuel. I'm telling you, you can see the whole, all the events. They take place there. There's, the, there's a part where the God that they have in that temple, they come in every morning and he's fallen over. He just keeps he's on the ground. His face is all smashed from falling over. It's like when the Nazi symbol burns off. It's my favorite movie. Uh, and then you know the part where their faces melt? Also happens in 1 Samuel. And when that happens, they say, we got to get rid of this thing right now. Please come take it back. And the Israelites are like, okay, cool. And they come and get it and they take it back. It's very interesting. All of that goes on. Great things happen in the life of Samuel. Uh, and then as Samuel ages, his sons are not like him. They don't follow God. And so the people make a decision and they come to him. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4, it says, The elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, very blunt, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give to us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they've not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. And so they are also doing this to you. Now then obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of a king who shall reign over them. So Samuel goes to the elders and he gives them a speech about, hey, if you have a king, he's going to marry your daughters. He's going to send your sons to war. He's going to dig into your pockets. He's going to tax you. He's going to take from you. All of these things, because a king will be a man instead of God. He's not kind and benevolent. He will take, take, take. And the people say, we want a king. Give us a king. So God sends Samuel to the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe the people kept choosing to lead, to pick a leader that they would want to lead them, to get their kind of king, to give them what they think they want. They find a man who is head and shoulders taller than everybody else. I mean, this is a long time ago, so everybody's probably like five feet tall. This guy's like five, eight, tallest dude in town. And he's handsome, super handsome. I mean, he, he, essentially, he is the kind of king the people want. And his name is Saul. 
And Samuel finds Saul and tells him he is going to be king. And this is what Saul responds with. Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? Israel, And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why have you spoken to me in this way? It's interesting because when I read that at first, it sounds like a humble answer. And humility is absolutely a trait you want in a king and in a leader. But as I study the life of Saul, I learn this is not humility. There is no humility in the heart and in the life of Saul. Instead, what we see here is insecurity. And it's easy to get the two mixed up. Insecurity and humility. Insecurity is the downfall of Saul. Insecurity makes him bitter and mean. It makes him constantly competing with those around him. It makes him use his power in a way that hurts people. I think we confuse insecurity and humility because we don't understand what humility really is. Insecurity takes us to jealousy, anger, and a need for approval. Humility instead leads us to a place of confident leadership. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Humility comes with confidence in who you are without a constant need to prove it. Humility means I know who I am and I make a choice to put others before myself. Saul's insecurity mixed with his position lead him to pride and arrogance. We see an example a couple chapters later in 1 Samuel 13. Saul's leading the Israelites in a battle with the Philistines. And the Philistines are a constant enemy for the people of Israel. We see them a lot in the scriptures. Philistine is a Hebrew word that means sea people. So you won't find Philistines on a map anywhere or even really in history unless it's Hebrew history because it's just a Hebrew word meaning sea peoples. These were folks that were invading from the Mediterranean Sea, coming into Jerusalem and invading, starting wars and trying to take territory. Most historians believe these were a Greek people, an early Greek people coming in and going to war constantly with the Hebrew people. And so there is this battle with the Philistines, and to begin the battle, they're supposed, the Israelites are supposed to offer a sacrifice to God. And there's a lot of rules about how they're supposed to do it in order to honor God properly. Samuel is supposed to be the priest that does it, but Saul gets tired of waiting and does it himself, taking upon himself the role of priest. And this is a very big deal because it breaks the commandments of God. It seems innocuous to us, I know. Why is this such a big deal? He's making a sacrifice to God. It's not a big deal because he made a sacrifice. It's a big deal because he did it his way instead of God's way. Because we don't always have to understand God's way. It doesn't have to make sense to us, but it does matter. And Saul says, I can do this my way and it'll be good enough. And so when Samuel shows up, he says this, you have done foolishly. You've not kept, kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For when the Lord would have established, if you would have kept the command, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be the prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Saul loses the anointing of the Lord here at this part of the story. From then on, it's a spiral for Saul. And God 
is going to bring a redeemer for the people of Israel that is not the kind of redeemer they would have chosen. He is not the kind of redeemer they would have picked from a lineup. He doesn't have the characteristics that humanity seeks or thinks that they want. But what he has is what the people of Israel really need and the characteristics that humanity needs. And he has the heart of God so that he can serve well. God is preparing him even during this time. Saul's life is an important lesson. Pride destroys potential. He could have been a great king, the first king of Israel, but his insecurity and his pride take that away from him. Saul's insecurity leads him to lash out at anyone who takes the spotlight, including on multiple occasions his own son, Jonathan. Jonathan, the son of Saul, is a great man and a fantastic warrior. There's a story in 1 Samuel 14 where Saul decides in the middle of this great big battle that nobody is allowed to eat until we win this thing. Nobody takes a bite until the battle is won. It sounds cool when you shout it, but in reality, telling a whole army to just be starving while they're fighting with swords seems like a bad idea. Jonathan didn't hear it because he was with his armor bearer looking at a cliff that would come right up to the embankment, to the encampment of the enemy army. And it's nighttime and he knows they're up there partying, getting ready for the battle and or their men are down on the line fighting over here. And Jonathan says, hey, if we come up from behind them on that cliff, we can confuse them and we can win this battle for the Lord. And he looks at the armor bearer and he says, hey, bro, what do you think? Are you with me? And the armor bearer says, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. Oh, yeah. And then they beat chests and they go up the cliff. They got their, it says they got their swords in their mouths. How cool is this, you guys? They're climbing up. They got swords. They're like pirates coming up this cliff. They go into the camp and they start slinging swords. And there is so much confusion in the camp that it says the men begin to battle one another. This army, this enemy army is killing each other because they don't know who's attacking them for where or why. And in the middle of all this fighting, Jonathan looks and he sees a honeycomb. And that honey looks real good. So he takes the end of his spear and he grabs some of that honey and he eats a little bit of it. And it says his eyes became bright because my guy got a big sugar rush. And he went with that sugar rush and defeated an entire army. But I'm just telling you, it was incredible. This army is toast. They're done. And everybody's celebrating and they're celebrating Jonathan. Jonathan comes down covered in blood and honey and looking so cool. And the army is like, wow, this is amazing. And Saul finds out that he ate honey against his rules and that everyone is now celebrating Jonathan instead of Saul. His insecurity kicks in and he decides he's got to kill Jonathan. He's got to kill him. You have to die for breaking my commands. And the only reason that he doesn't follow through with it is because the people cry out against him and say, no, 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 he is our hero. We won't be killing him today. That is the pattern of of Saul in this time of his reign. Saul and his arrogance get worse and worse until one day he messes up bad. He fights an enemy called the Amalekites and he spares their leader, Agag. And even though God told him not to, he spares him. And it's got these major consequences on the people down the road. So Samuel comes to Saul and they have it out. Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? He's calling out his insecurity. The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? 
Why did, you pronounce on, why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Samuel speaks to Saul's constant insecurity and disobedience. And then Saul apologizes. He does this a couple times. He says to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. But God still takes his anointing away. So we read this and maybe we think, what about the grace of God? That's a pretty earnest sounding apology. How come God doesn't forgive Saul and give him another chance? Well, the answer is because Paul's actions immediately after this continue in the same path he was on before. An apology is meaningless without a change in your actions. And when we offer words of repentance, it doesn't mean anything without actions of repentance. We have to turn and pursue a new way. Saul doesn't do that. He just knows the right things to say. And so God is taking away his anointing. He's given it to someone else. And that someone else is not tall. He's not widely known. He's a shepherd tending sheep. And he's a boy. Number three is David. Chapters 16 through 31 tell us the story of David. Now, when we come back for season two, I'm going to spend a lot of time talking about David, telling the story of David. So I'm just giving you the main story points for David's origin in 1 Samuel today. David was anointed king. Samuel goes to look at the sons of Jesse, and at first he's going to choose one of David's brothers because he's big and strong and he's the oldest. But God says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. It's a direct reference to Saul. Saul was chosen for how much he looked like a king and because the people kept following the tribe of Benjamin. But God chose based on what was inside. He calls David a man after God's own heart. He's humble, he's kind, he's capable. He's of the tribe of Judah, the tribe that God called to take the lead over Israel. And the way that God sees us is very different from the way that people see us. And the kind of leaders that God calls are different from the kind of leaders God often chooses. That God calls are different from the kind of leaders people often choose. David starts off as an intern at the palace. He's anointed, and from there he goes to be at the palace. He's an intern there, and he's playing music. Saul, at this point, was going into these fits of rage, these psychotic breaks. The Bible says an evil spirit was sent to torment him. And David would play his harp, and it would soothe Saul and calm him down. And so he finds an important position in the king's court. But eventually, war breaks out again with the Philistines. And the whole court goes to war against the Philistines. Saul leads the army. Everybody goes with him. And David goes back to his father's house since there's no one left at court. And while he's there, he's taking care of the sheep again. Eventually, his dad says to him, hey, you need to go bring some supplies to your brother. And so David does to your brothers. He's got a bunch of brothers who are fighting in this war. So David 
gets out there to the battlefield. And this battlefield is set up in, in such a way that there's a valley. And then there's hills on either side. And one has the Philistine army. And one has the Israelite army. And these armies would line up and come to meet each other in this valley. And a, as was a custom in these days, the Philistines would send a champion out to the front to challenge a champion of Israel. Instead of fighting army versus army, they would settle it man versus man. And this champion was named Goliath. And Goliath was nine feet tall and humongous and he was covered in scars and he was mean and scary. He had been fighting wars since he was a child. Saul would come out and he would challenge the Israelite army and say, come, who, which, which of you is brave enough to stand against me? And none of them were. They were like, we ain't fighting that guy. That dude's huge. This is insane. So the, then the Israelites would go back up into their camp. And the Philistines would go back to their camp. And the whole night, Goliath would just pace back and forth in that valley, yelling up to the Israelites, you cowards, who is your God? You've got no, nobody brave enough to come up against me and against the gods of my people. David comes to bring lunch to his brothers, and he's like, what's up with that guy? What's going on down there? That dude is big. And he's saying some really bad stuff about my God. And the brothers tell him what's going on. And David's like, why isn't anybody fighting him? And they're like, I mean, have you seen this guy? He's enormous. Of course we're not going to fight him. And David, he understands what nobody else in the entire Israelite army understands. What he understands is that the moment that Goliath stood against the God of Israel, that whoever would go down to fight Goliath didn't just go on his own. He went with the might of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Moses on his side, that Goliath was the underdog, that nobody stands against the Lord, and that the Lord would give victory to whoever went and fought this battle. So David says, well, I'll do it. This is no big deal for me. I'll go take care of it. I'll go take care of it right now. And, uh, and everybody's like, are you sure? You're kind of a little guy. And he's like, I don't care. I got this. And David goes, and uh, Saul hears about David ready to go fight the Philistine. And Saul's like, whew, that kid's going to die. I'll give him my armor so that I get a little bit of credit for this. And he goes and he gives his armor to David. And David is like a foot shorter than Saul. And so it looks ridiculous. He can't even, David's not like the strongest guy. He's like trying to pick up the sword. He's like, can't do it. Puts it down, takes the armor off. He's like, this looks ridiculous. I look ridiculous. He walks down to a creek and he does what my kids do every time they see a body of water and starts picking through every single rock in the creek, trying to find the perfect one. He gets some good rocks. He puts them in his bag. Saul's like, you're going to die out there, you know. And David's like, bro, I'm a shepherd, okay? I, I one time, one time I killed a bear. I killed a bear. And this is in there. And to me, I think they want you to think David's an underdog. This man has killed a bear before. I don't know about you. I am not fighting a bear with a stick and some rocks. Nuh-uh. I don't even know what kind of bears lived in Israel. Doesn't matter. Could be the smallest bear in the world. I'm not fighting it. David's like, I fought a bear. I'm not afraid of this guy. Lions and bears, no problem for me and my God. And so he gets his slingshot. He walks down there to the battlefield, and the Philistine looks at him, and he's like, are you kidding me? The Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? 
And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the trash talk starts here. The Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the whole host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth. That is all the earth may know, that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword and the spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand holy smokes I get the chills this kid this shepherd boy is bringing the heat Goliath was not prepared he was like okay let's just fight I'm not saying anything after that and the Philistine, he's, David's on his speech, Philistine stands up. He's getting hot and bothered, you know. And his, his armor bearer, the guy who's carrying his shield, they go running out there. And David is sprinting full speed down this hill toward Goliath to meet the Philistine. And David put in his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it, put it in his little, he had the, the way a slingshot was, was like a strap with a little spot in the middle. And he put that stone in there and he slung this sucker around and threw it and it struck the Philistine on his forehead and it sank into his forehead and he fell on his face on the ground. David knocks down the Philistine, knocks him out with the rock. He's, he kind of saunters over there. He grabs this dude's like six foot long sword, drags it across the earth, heaves it one time and kapow, cuts his head off. It's awesome. <laughs> it's the awesomest story in all the Bible other than the resurrection. So David does all this. Everybody sees it. Everybody hears it. You know, they're impressed about the speech alone. You know, David cuts this guy's head off and he grabs this giant head and he drags it up the hill and kind of rolls it at Saul. And he's like, there you go. And then the army's all fired up and they go down this hill and they go and they rout the Philistine army. They don't leave a single person alive. It is a victory for the Lord and his people on this day. Awesome battle. Incredible thing. And on the other side of this, David becomes a commander in the army. And uh, because, of course, he does. This, this shepherd, they're like, okay, you're, you get however many men you want. They're yours now. Go do what you want to do. And they have this war against the Philistines. We don't know how long it lasts, but we know that David led many battles. They're coming back into Jerusalem. And as they come back into Jerusalem, uh, the people are lining up in the streets. And they're singing a song. And they're singing, David has, they're singing, Saul has killed his thousands. And David has killed his tens of thousands. He's the hero, and the insecurity of Saul is triggered. Saul hears this song, and he builds a hatred and a bitterness in his belly for David. He turns on him, starts throwing spears at him one time. He's just hanging out. They're like, everybody's having a good time, and Saul ruins it by throwing a spear at David. So David flees into the desert and spends years running and hiding while Saul hunts him. Uh, at one point, he's got Saul in a vulnerable position and could kill him and end it and take the throne, but he doesn't out of honor and respect and submission to authority because that's the heart of David. It goes this way for about 10 years. David was in the court and serving in the military for around five, six years, and he marries one of Saul's daughters. He becomes close friends with Saul's son, Jonathan, and for a decade, he's living in the desert among Israel's enemies, hiding from Saul. And finally, 
At the end of 1 Samuel, Saul dies. There's this great battle that, again, Saul has done all the wrong things. He was consulting psychics before the battle. And they lose. And it's this fantastic defeat of the Israel army, an absolute defeat. Saul knows he's going to be taken. He's terrified because he's insecure. He's afraid. And he's a small man, no matter how big his stature is. And so he asks his armor bearer to kill him. And his armor bearer says, I'm not killing the king of Israel. So Saul sticks his sword's butt end into the sand and falls forward onto it, taking his own life. And the army comes and they kill all of his sons and wipe out his line. And thus ends the reign of King Saul. David is in the wilderness. And what happens next is in 2 Samuel. Cliffhanger. Season one finale. Couple quick takeaways. Uh, number one, God's way is better. Ever since the garden, we've been trying to do things our own way. We think our truth makes the most sense. We think we're the ones who should decide what is and isn't moral. We think the path that we would choose is a better path than the one that God is picking for us. But the Bible tells us differently. The Bible tells us that we choose Saul. But God chooses David. What we choose leads us towards destruction. But what God chooses on our behalf, he chooses, leads us towards life. God chose Jesus for us on our behalf so that we could follow a pathway that would lead us to life. Second thing is this. Humility over insecurity. Humility over over insecurity. If you have insecurity inside of you, devote yourself to learning who God says you are, to discovering what he's placed in you, what he's put you to, what, what, what he's put in you, what he's made you capable of. Understand your place in his kingdom so that you know that even if you're just a shepherd boy, that if you're fighting on behalf of him, there's nothing you cannot do. Build humility not in security. God is not looking for insecure followers. He wants us to be confident in who we are and in who he is. Number three is this. When you are under God's will, your circumstances do not affect your blessing. That's the big lesson in David and Goliath. David's Vegas odds in that fight would have been pretty bad. Saul even tells him, look, you're just a kid. This guy's been fighting wars since he was a kid. You don't stand a chance here, bud. But David knew. He knew it was God's will. This man was standing against the people of God, which was the same thing as standing against God. So Goliath was destined to fail. In the beginning of the story, Samuel's got to bring this bad news to the high priest. Hey, since you didn't do the right thing when your sons began hurting people, God is going to wipe out your whole family. That's a tough message for a teenager to bring his spiritual father. But he is in God's will. And he does it. And Eli receives it. And God blesses him because of it. I wonder what God is calling you to do that feels like the odds are stacked against you. Like there's no way. What, 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 what you have to lose is so much greater than what you have to gain. But if you are in God's will, your circumstances will not affect the outcome. 
Maybe it's something like inviting people to church and talking about God in a secular workplace or with family or friends who don't go to church and just admitting that you follow Jesus. That can be scary. But, if it, but it is the will of God. And so you can trust in him and give him the outcome. Maybe it's a big leap of faith, something God's calling you to do that's scary and big and out ahead of you. And I don't know, the circumstances look bad. But if you feel in your spirit that it's the right move, trust the outcome to him. When you are under God's will, your circumstances won't affect your blessing. Maybe you've been living your whole life choosing Saul's when God was getting David's ready for you. Maybe all your life you've been trying to do it your way and it's just not working. The Bible tells us that when we enter into a relationship with Jesus, that we have the opportunity to receive a kind of blessing that you'll never be able to get going your own way. So the Bible doesn't promise you blessings of financial stability and power and all the things that we think we want. It doesn't say anything about that. What the Bible offers you is blessings that come from within. Redemption. Satisfaction. Peace. Purpose. The longing that you've been plagued with all of your life finally fulfilled. Those are the kinds of blessings that come from a relationship with Jesus. If you're here today and you're ready to enter into that relationship and start doing things God's way, let me just lead you there. It starts with a prayer. It goes like this. Pray with me. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Heavenly Father, forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for trying to do it my own way for making my own rules. Forgive me for all the times I've gotten it wrong. I need you. I believe in you. I believe that you came to make a way for me. And so all that I am from this day forward, I give it to you. I want to do it your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.